Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to this week's episode of Ask the Experts. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatic. We are lenders at First National Financial and co-hosts of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. You'd think the fact that we've done almost 200 of these things, I'd know how to unmute myself. Today's episode is about construction costs and you know, basically a transaction update from Altus. Our guest today is a gentleman named Marlon Bray, who likes to refer to himself as somebody that does stuff at Altus. His formal title is Senior Director of Cost Consulting. I'm not sure what that means, Marlon. Why don't we just jump into your background and explain to me why you got into QS Cost Consulting and how you ended up at Altus? Oh, so my background is and how I got into QS, and I got into QS by accident. I left college, didn't know what I wanted to do. I loved numbers. I managed to find a company called Faith and Gould that paid for me to go to university. I liked construction, ended up in Quantisphere. My background, obviously, is English by the accent. I moved here in 2001. Basically, my wife's Canadian. I met her in Liverpool, but she's French-Canadian. Don't worry, she's not from Liverpool. The reason I mention that is I'm a huge Man United fan. Also, we're not talking about Sunday. I hope all the Italians enjoyed their grappa and had a really bad hangover afterwards. Basically, went straight out of college into being a QS. I liked doing it. Worked out on site for Coffee and Gould doing pharmaceuticals for the first five years. Met my wife. Moved to Canada in 2001. And I actually worked with a small little company called Adria Hooker Associates. And yes, we did get some really odd phone calls, and I suspect they still do. Mainly that sort of part of the career was focused on public sector stuff, then moved over into mission-critical data centers bunch of big refurbs. Then one day, Altus came along, made me an offer to come out and try the private side or the dark side of, of the, the business. And I'm like, yep, I will try something new. And I came in at an interesting time with Altus where they're going for a big transition in both their senior management and where they were heading. I believe you said you spoke to Colin Johnson on one of his podcasts talking about that. And when I came in, we were moving from the hellier days of the blue book being the primary focus to really that adding the value, bringing in the technology and starting to use the data and going a little bit more, I'd say, science-based approach and putting big focus on that pre-construction, which is an area I focus on, and on that risk mitigation, using a little bit more science that was available with the software then. The other thing is that when I joined Altus, they realized I liked the sound of my voice, my own voice, way too much, and I ended up doing all the market presentations, which is where I've met you guys for the last six to eight years. So anyone that's heard me knows I talk very fast. I go through way too many slides, and thankfully, no one's letting me narrate slides today, so you guys are safe. So I, I suppose that's the background of me. Other than the one warning, I do tend to throw out the odd expletive if I'm going to try my best to be on the best behavior. It's a suspicious upbringing and spending the first five years of my career on site. So, Well, we haven't encountered that too much, so we'll leave that to everybody <laughs> in the background to deal with a string of profanity, but probably indicates you're passionate about real estate. Before we move on, just a quick question about the ever-growing presence of science and what you do. If you go back to your starting days, how much of it was art back then? My starting days was a lot of it was experience, which is still valuable. It was a bunch of guys. We still actually wrote takeoff down by hand. And the first thing I ever did as a QS was actually doing a bill of quants, which someone in Canada would never see, which is laborious going through the drawings, literally counting every nut and bolt. And then you went to the contractors and got priced, and that was used. And I still remember I didn't get my first computer for like a year and a half. So I'm that flip over point where all of a sudden we've gone from computers to non-computers. Now I feel really old. So it was it was hard then to be science-based. It was more art and experience and just knowing your stuff. So the first five years were great because I had to know my stuff to survive. 
Now, I still have to know my stuff, but it helps when I can quote a ton of facts and figures and present some pretty charts that show Warren right. Basically, I always knew I was right. Now I've got a chart that shows it. <laughs> you got to have confidence, clearly, to battle the developers. Marlon, we're going to get into sort of the status of the development industry right now as we're kind of coming out of COVID and just what's transpiring right now, what our developer partners, clients are experiencing, just so that we can kind of maybe set a little bit of a, of a platform, Marlon, maybe just explain just in general what cost consulting is or what quantity surveying is, and then we'll lead that into kind of what you're seeing in the marketplace. Yeah, we're kind of the jack of all trades, but it all comes back to numbers. So it's a whole life cycle thing where at the beginning, we're looking at the estimating side, the benchmarking, a lot of due diligence feasibility, especially with land acquisition. Then as the project goes forward, you're keeping an eye on the numbers, doing continual update. Then as we flow into sort of construction, we help with contracts, we can help with tendering, we help out with that, getting the project up and running. And then once it's into construction, we go into that more traditional monitoring role, which is a lender you would experience, which is that monthly keeping an eye on the project, controlling the risk, controlling the cost to complete. And generally more at the that, that monitoring side is more about that mitigating risk and collaborating with the developer, the bank, making sure the project can move forward. And all in all, the best summary is we're real problem solvers. Every time we get a problem, we love a challenge. We always make the joke. We're kind of like the guys that fix everything with a, you know, a roll of duct tape or throw a a can on a, an exhaust pipe as we once did when I was younger, with that sort of that odd military way of, we'll just figure it out. And we usually just figure it out. With a really to add value. That's my whole stick. If you ever look when I do the presentations, when I do the client pitches, I'm all about adding value. If I'm not going to supplement your team, if I'm not going to add value, I'm not going to reduce risk, don't hire me. There's no point. And that's really the whole ethos, both Altus like, which is what drew me to them. And that's also sort of a little bit of a passion for me. I like to go in, I like to optimize projects. I like to look at how you do stuff different. I like to challenge the status quo. I just don't assume it has to be the way it is just because. And it's not like a client has to accept that, but at least if you're giving suggestions, you're giving alternates, when you make a decision, you make it based on a real good set of information. You make a rational decision. And as you move through the project, hopefully that makes that experience better, maintain your returns and limit the risk when it comes to the lender side of things. Marlon mentioned that we interviewed Colin Johnson, who's the president of, of Altus. We just did that yesterday. So it'll come out on the commercial real estate podcast for our listeners in a week or two. And in that, we talk about the trajectory of Altus, the history, the focus on data, the ability to use that data to do trend analysis and provide sort of an advisory service. And that was a real sort of crux of the conversation. So We'll kind of leave that to that interview with Colin for other listeners. However, I think it's important to talk about just that advisory component, and then we'll get into the real sort of nitty-gritty of cost later or soon. How much time do you spend looking at deals, looking at opportunities, looking at developments for your clients that never end up going anywhere, that never end up into the next stages? Because you mentioned you kind of the quantity surveying component, like the progress draw reviews and being on site, that's kind of the end game. Like the start is really about where you provide the value. How much time do you spend where it really doesn't end up being fruitful in the long run? It's not as often, I think, as people would think. A lot of deals is more so about figuring when it doesn't initially make sense, i.e. the return means that you're not going to get financed and there's no profit, it's not going to get built. It's then we're looking at different ways. Can you make it work? So I would say the majority of projects actually move forward. What we have seen more so the last years is the trend of when deals don't quite make sense, then being flipped on to the, the next developer who's got a different idea, a different way that they want to do it, and seeing that sort of transact um, through. For example, we have sites that have had three different developers look at them, and the final guys made it work. 
it, it's just the nature of the market and the fact revenues have kept moving and that projects have kept moving and they've kept them in balance. The projects that really don't make sense, we see realistically, they probably never should have been a development in the first place. They just, a lot of the times it's just a lack of density or we've seen occasions where some of the unsophisticated new developers in the market, they don't know how to tick the boxes and everyone thinks the difficult bit's selling, the hard bit's that development, but getting through that development process, getting the approvals, and then you have to build it. In recent years, generally, I won't say it's taking care of itself, there's a lot of work involved in it, but it's been the easier portion of the development. It's typically that early stage and that not having sewer capacity or the projects in an area that's not going to support the density they were looking at to purchase, that tends to kill it more so than sort of being a genuine real project that we can kind of make work. So the theme of the conversation today is profitability and development. Maybe this is a bridge to that. You mentioned, of course, that maybe developers not doing their homework is part of the reason that a project might not be viable. But with the recent rapid increase in hard costs, I know that caught a number of people by surprise. And in my own personal lending world, I did have more than one deal that got put on pause while we wait to see what the you know, longer term effects of that are. Did you see projects that became non-viable solely because of the recent highly publicized increase in hard costs? Yeah, definitely. Uh, both on purpose-built rental and the condo side of things where they've had to pause because it doesn't make sense. On a condo, I think it's a different discussion in that realistically, the risk point is when you sell. From that point, and I think we'd had the conversation before about that, that, that taxi chip keeps running. If you're in a taxi, the, the meter just keeps running. That's what happens with construction costs. If you sell at a project early, but you can't get through that approval stage, the entire time your costs are going up. So if you look at a delay, for example, in that upfront stage before the permit, it can be costing you $5 a square foot. And we do that in GCA, which is the above grade construction area. It can cost you that every three months. So you lose a year, you lost 20 bucks a square foot. In essence, you start to get to the point where you get 18 months out, two years out, and it starts to challenge the profitability whatsoever. Hence the fact you'll see some projects get cancelled and a recent trend hasn't been as high as, say, 2018. There's some ways of avoiding that, not selling out too early has become a common theme since I think 2017, 2018 now, where people tend to go up to just what the threshold the lender requires, hold back, may not sell for a year or two, that can use as extra contingency. Purposeful rental, that's a different one. I think the purposeful rental projects are on hold right now, so there's some definite fear on the revenue side. I make jokes in my presentation about downtown Toronto becoming the zombie apocalypse with the rents contracting by 20%. They got a real leap of faith as a rental guy now because you have to go ahead assuming those rents will return back to wherever you're going to perform with and be them pre-pandemic and that the cap rates will hold to make sense. So it's a lot tricky for them. But the one advantage is their revenue doesn't appear until they actually start lease up and start going into stabilization. So in theory, some of that cost escalation can be dealt with through the construction period by increases in revenue. The challenge is obviously from the loan side and you've got a fixed loan. That doesn't always help when you're getting hammered with double digit construction escalation. You talked about, Marlon, just cost escalation. So let's go there. Let's just go to lumber first, because that's clearly the one that's on everybody's mind. Lumber's gone up. You tell us how much, why, and what's the trend going to look like in sort of the next 12, 18 months? I think the thing with lumber is to remember, it's kind of a uh, once-in-a-lifetime scenario. You come in at the end of a pandemic, you've constrained supply, i.e. mills slow down expecting not to have to produce as much. And then the demand went through the roof, not just on the housing side in the US and in Canada, but in particular on the home renovation front. And everyone at home assumed the market would slow down, but everyone went butt wild and crazy. 
that impact was that supply and demand were completely and utterly out of balance. If you look at the futures on lumber, it basically went from like 300 bucks per thousand board feet US and at some point hit $1,600 and now it's coming back down again. So if you looked at a townhome cost, for example, one point last year, you may be looking at $12, $15 a square foot on the supply of lumber. That spiked at $35 to $40, which you can imagine is it's a massive increase, $25,000, $30,000 increase in the price of, say, a townhome. However, that's already started to correct itself. The last 30 days has had the biggest drop in lumber prices since the 70s. And that trend's going to carry on. And that trend's likely to carry on right through to the end of the year, Q3, Q4. Will it come back to $12, $15? Probably not. Right now, when we're talking to people, you know, it, it might come down to the $20, $22, which sounds doom and gloom, but you can kind of deal with that. When it goes up to $35 and the lumber guy's telling you, I can't hold my price, and you've got lumber suppliers having to pull contracts because they can't lose money, that challenge is way worse than being able to plan ahead with what is a high but workable number. So I think on the construction side, that the lumber one is, I'd like to say we're in a sort of hangover from the impact of the pandemic where things are sorting itself out. And I really think towards the end of this year, early into next year, we'll have a much better picture on cost escalation from the lumber side, which has hit the low rise and the mid rise. I think the traditional stuff around everyone knows formwork, I mean, it's, it's been talked about since 2017. That side of things, that's going to carry on because the market's busy. Perhaps 2022 in the GTA, there could be an opportunity for a little bit of constraint. I, it won't go up as fast. It'll still go up just because the number of starts should be a little lower next year. But on the back of that, you look at Montreal, and I, I make the joke of Montreal, it's sort of out of the frying pan into the fire. That still looks hot right through to next year. Vancouver and Ottawa are picking up place. Calgary's a little flat. So I think escalation's a massive challenge. I mean, in, in Toronto, we're up almost 40% in, since 2017. And if format carries on, it's basically doubling price every three years if you're looking at high rise. So it's becoming really, really difficult to maintain those sort of escalation increases. And I've made comments before, basically, if the revenue stops going up, you're just going to start to see things stop because there won't be enough margin left in the business to make sense. Well, let's talk about that margin. I mean, obviously, lumber is big headline news now. Steel is making a lot of headlines prior to COVID. The trades have had a good decade of people warning about this cliff of people in their ranks retiring and they cause further shortages. And so costs have just gone up for a variety of reasons over at least a time frame of you know 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. And of course, rents and profit and condo prices have also been rising at that time. But if you go back 10 years, developer profitability is way higher than it is now. So you, can you take us back through kind of 10, 15 years, the highlights of Maybe when developers were winning more than they were losing and then where they might have had issues of costs running into profitability in order to slow them down? I think when you look at project profitability, lumping them all in together doesn't really kind of make sense. I think there was always home run projects and there's still home run projects today. There's just less of them. And I think that margin has come down and it, it's not just come down. It's harder to manage now through construction, through planning, through that whole gamut that's just got longer. The red tape's got worse. The productivity, which you mentioned, touches into escalation has got worse. 12% drop off in productivity. All of that's got worse. So the, the margins where you could see a home run project 20%, it used to be people looking at performance like, I want to target 15%. That reality now of sometimes we're down into the 12 the 11%. It's been, a, I think, a little bit of a shock to the system. And that sort of started around 2017 as the revenues went up, I think 17, 16 started to get real tough at the end of that year in terms of some projects making sense, even decent sized projects where you got three, 400 units. It was getting tight because the revenue was really flat. The revenue took off then from 17 
through to basically now it's up, what, 90% or so on the condo side. And then if you look at the rental side, the rents have gone crazy, cap rates gone down. The challenge is, is during that period, construction costs went up significantly. We've seen DCs go up significantly. You see the side with HST and basically people say, well, HST, the percentage hasn't changed. No, it hasn't changed, but there's a rebate system that is way out of date now. So basically, you have a 300 unit condo in 2017, look right today, it could be $12 million more in HST. All that's really, really put pressure on that, uh, that margin, especially if you look at the project delays. Like I mentioned earlier, if the project's delayed 12 months, you're basically losing 20 bucks a square foot. All of that piles onto you start a project with a margin, trying to maintain it is way harder. And it's all the way through the project time to look to reset. How can I manage? And a recent trend we've seen to try and manage those margins is looking at stuff. I call it optimization. Some people like value management. It's early on in that project, really looking at how do I squeeze every square foot of sellable out? How do I squeeze every square foot of rentable space? How do I make that building? We always say simpler, not cheaper, because cheaper is a hiding to nothing. How do I simplify it where I need to? And how do I make it a good return? And that good return might be 11 to 12%. And people go, okay, at $1,200 a square foot, how's it a good return? Everything else went up and everything else keeps going up and everything takes longer. So the margins being continually threatened and developers having to proactively manage in an environment where everyone assumes the developer is making a 10 and 10 of money. I'm not sure 10 or 12% where a development horizon could be seven to eight years is necessarily the greatest return, especially if you consider the risk that goes into it. And if you're the guy whose project doesn't work, it can go very badly. Let's keep focusing on those cost escalations, Marlon, because I think we, when we touched on lumber, I was fortunate enough to see a presentation you had done a couple of weeks ago, and you kind of made the joke, clients are coming and say, well, I'll just push to steel. Yeah. But that doesn't work either, right? Like steel's not cheap either. No, nope. lumber went up. So everyone said, let's switch to steel. So for example, steel studs. Steel studs are up around 60% since the beginning of the year. So that didn't work. Then it's, let's look at hollow core with steel. Well, then steel prices, because commodities went completely crazy in Q4 last year. Basically, most commodities are up 34%. So steel went crazy. Then it's, okay, I could do block and holocode. That might work up to six stories, doesn't work taller. Steel studs getting up to 10 stories is really pushing it anyway. And you end up back at formwork, which is really expensive, but people kind of know how to work with formwork. So there's a little rest risk around that. There's risks when you pioneer. But we are seeing six, seven, eight story stuff where it's out of holocore and concrete blocks that can work. You see stuff like the total precast system where people are looking at that's where the exterior walls, the interior walls are precast instead. Again, that all used to have a cost benefit, but what happens is as the market gets busier, more and more trades are pulled into being busy. Those, The ability of, say, the cold form stud, which is the steel studs and the exterior to work, becomes harder because now they become busy, and that's the challenge we see. Um, looking into the horizon, we do have mass timber that's starting to ramp up. Right now, that is a little bit more expensive, but again, that's just partly because of the it's not built up that volume it's manufacturing build a ford f-150 ford has it down pat manufacturing down pat housing's never got to that level of ability to manufacture at a reasonable cost where it can offset the in situ stuff i think you're going to see over the next four or five years an increase in that that, that mass timber which is stuff the clt panels and whatnot become prevalent and then eventually we'll see a little bit more modular housing the big question around that is when does it become significant? Right now, it's less than 1% of the market. Even if it increased to 3 or 4% of the market, which would be a huge jump, how much of a difference does it make to address that cost overrun or those cost challenges? And obviously, you do an 80-story tower downtown. It's steel or concrete. And in Toronto, it's a concrete city. So it's going to be concrete 99 times out of 100. 
So mass timber and modular, as you said, are less than 1% of the market and theoretically grow over time, but they are out there in the market. Is there any building tech when you're sitting around with other people that just live and breathe it like you? Have you seen any building tech that gets you really excited that we might see in the market in three, four, five years time that could be a game changer? I think the challenge with building tech is construction tends to be somewhat I wouldn't say not overly innovated. The reason they're not overly innovated is if you look at construction, you look at development, it's a massive risk. You're basically buying a piece of land, you're gambling over an eight-year period what the, that horizon's going to look, and you're hoping you can make it work. So to go try new technology, it can get a little scary. I think when you look at it in the market, I do think mass timber is going to be an exciting one that grows. Anyone that's seen a mass timber building like 8 Atlantic, it just looks amazing. Also fantastic from a sustainability point of view on the carbon. Module is going to increase. I just It's trying to grow it to a scale. And then the future is going to be stuff like people have been talking about, and it's the Internet of Things. It's looking at the BIM. It's looking at these things. I was at another conference a couple of years ago, actually, because it was pre-pandemic. They were talking about digital twinning. All that stuff is picking up pace. It's just so slow to get into the market. And in particular, I think Canada is a little more... I wouldn't say behind, but a lot more resistant to change. Even if you looked at it as a, a funny nuance, if you go to Ottawa or Montreal, a lot of the towers, concrete towers there are column-based. If you stay in Toronto, the shear wall-based. Why? Because the concrete forming guys in Toronto are like shear-based. And in Montreal, the column building's much more acceptable. It's one of those weird nuances of different markets. I think everyone likes to look at the Canadian market as one. You basically got each province does its own thing to a degree, and then there's some commonality that spreads over them. And it's the same challenge you get into when you're dealing with municipalities and whatnot. They're all got these unique little quirks to them. Will innovation pick up? If you look, there's not really a choice. I mentioned earlier, residential production in Ontario is down 12%. You'd mentioned earlier that discussion about the retirements and the fact there is a lack of workforce and the massive pressures that's putting on construction. That's getting worse over the next 10 years. The recruitment has to increase. Will things get better? Hopefully, there has to be a replacement of that. You'll read articles 3D printing. Tiny part of the market, will it do something? I don't know. Right now, it looks marginal. They could take over. I once did a presentation on technology to an apartment conference, and we went through like 20 technologies. They're all great. They just have to happen. The problem with technologies, a contractor is only going to use technology if there's a benefit to him, either from a competitive point of view or he can save money. Developers only going to use technology if there's a benefit to them cost-wise, schedule-wise, or the zero risk, or there's better quality. That's what's going to change the market. It's got to be pushed from the ownership down. It will come from bottom up only if you get, like, say, that competitive advantage. You look at prefab, prefab in terms of, like, washroom units in jails, hospitals. P3 Project's been doing it for 10 years. You don't see it so much on the development side. There's the hotel group that likes to do modular. They're really the only ones that have done it. It's that picking up momentum and getting over that risk adverseness, which is hard to do in a market where costs go up every five minutes. Why would you want to take a risk? that you're going to make even less money gambling. It really suppresses innovation in the market. Marlon, we'll dig in on labor next because I think that's a really interesting conversation. But before that, I got one follow-up. Just when we talked about prefab or modular, I mean, some of the, the conversations I've heard that are an attribute is that you can build, you've got a kind of an industrial warehouse where you're putting all this stuff together, which shields you from the heavy winters that we experience in Canada. So there's, it compresses time. I've heard rumors, I have no idea if this is true or not, of Chinese developers putting up sort of 80-story towers in six weeks using sort of modular technologies. So that would, in theory, again, if, assuming that's not a giant overstatement, that that compresses the time frame, which you kind of indicated is one of the major risks of development. Why is it, do you think, that there's just been such a slow intake of that modular prefab ability, or are there flaws to it that we just don't see 
sort of from the outside? I think China is a unique example that's difficult to follow in that if you're in a country where money is no object and the government just gives out money to cover anything off, anything they do that's for show, is it's generally just for show. I think when you look at making it work, I forget the name of the company. It's a large module company in the US recently. I think they filed for bankruptcy. They were trying to go modular in a big way. It's that scalability. It's what I mentioned earlier about the Ford F-150 truck. The reason Ford can sell a truck at that price is because they have manufacturing down pat. They have a guaranteed volume of work. They know it's going to keep coming. They have a plan that's been perfected over the last 100 years. When you go into modular, everyone kind of starts from scratch. And I mean, a good example, I think I was done the last year, a couple of years ago, that they built a modular plan down at Stony Creek. They're looking at going into modular, but it's very difficult to make it cost-effective and scalable. The other challenge you have is you have to be able to move the modules. So you've got, I build in a factory, now I have to move it. Matami, obviously, I live out in Milton. Matami, for a long time, had a factory out in Milton. It just wasn't working. It's very difficult. You have to move everything you make down the roads. There's limit on the sizes. That's what happens on the precast when we're doing some of the industrial buildings. There's a limit on how much can fit on the back of a flatbed, too. So it really is a challenge to get that scale. And until we get the scale of manufacturing, i.e. there's going to be 5 million square foot a year of modular construction, it's hard to do it. That's why CLT has been ramping up so small. It's a manufacturing business. It's got to ramp up. You need suppliers that are willing to take that leap of faith that there'll be enough of a market for them. The challenge is as long as that market stays small, you never get scale. Modular housing is manufacturing. It's slightly different than construction. So Aaron touched on the labor issue. And for anybody who's not versed on it, I'm sure there's common knowledge. We might as well cover it. The problem with labor is that a huge chunk of that workforce is within a very tight time frame from reaching retirement. And it's not too feasible to replace somebody with 30 years experience with somebody that's a year and a half out of trade school. So unlike lumber, which prices skyrocketed very rapidly and then came down, this is a more slow-moving but a problem, but also much more slow-moving on the solution side. So where do you see that headed? Will the trade problem get solved? What's that going to look like in you know five years, 10 years, when we do run into that wave of retirements that everybody's been so concerned about? Yeah, I think on the current trajectory, it's heading for a disaster. In my slides, I have a picture of a guy walking off a cliff. That's kind of what we've been doing for a long time. Now, we're lucky in that there has been attempts to change that. I think the Ontario government now is changing the way that they work with the skilled labour, trying to recruit more people. We know that there's underrepresentation on site in particular from females. We know there's underrepresentation in Indigenous. And then we know there's underrepresentation in general in new migrants to the country. That's what needs correcting. The challenge you've got is, I think, construction, and this isn't just a Canadian problem. This is a Western world problem. There was a gap in construction during one of the recessions, and basically we've got that gap now where a certain age block is leaving, but that replacement was never there. Canada's doing better than the U.S., and not all trades suffer equally. Certain trades have more challenges than other, and we're facing now a peak in demand at the same time as those retirements are starting to happen. And the challenge you've got is, I usually make the joke, you can get a person, but getting a skilled person makes a big difference. One of the reasons format go up, there's only so many A crews. It's the same with any construction. If you read a lot of where construction claims have been going, I was reading an article about insurance and construction going up. Part of that is that there's a lack of those A crews now. So some contractors are going to use B, C, D. All of that risk goes up. Is it going to get better? Well, if they can increase recruitment, yeah. But you think about it, any kid that comes out of school at 15 or 16, that's England, or the community at 17, 18 here, they're going into computer programming, not into construction. No one's telling them going to the trades. One of the developers used to make a joke to me. He's like, if you fast forward in 10 years 
I'm going to be calling the plumber to fix my house. Uh, the lawyer's going to be calling the plumber to fix his house, and the plumber's going to turn up in a Bugatti. And that was sort of a joke where it really, the market's kind of backwards on that real skilled people. And that's not just trades. That's at the construction manager level in terms of staffing, project managers and whatnot. That happens in the consulting side. We see it in the quantity surveying business. You also see it on the consulting side with the architecture and the engineering where a real good cohort of people have been retiring. There's some great people behind them. There's just not quite enough for the volume of work that's happening in a lot of the major centers across Canada. What's the solution, Marlon? I've seen your presentation where there's more development coming, there's more starts than than deliveries, right? Like the scope and demand for development, therefore the labor is continuing to increase. How do you solve that problem? I think that's when you're going to start seeing those trigger points where the increase in stuff like manufactured modular homes, or you look at CLT, which is in essence a big mechanical set, they start to help because they need less labor. The cost for those is more likely to balance off and then they become more prevalent. And then it's just an increase in recruitment. And that's what I think the Ontario government's been working on, organizations like Rescon have been working on, trying to get that recruitment increased and trying to do the two at the same time. The challenge is it takes a while to try and persuade a bunch of kids, you don't need to go to university and do your coding exam or whatever degree you want to do, you can come into the trades, make a six-figure salary. There's a number of the trades where it's a great livering. And I think it's an education piece that's happening. I just don't see how it gets fixed in under five years. So I think what the problem lasts for five years right now, the trajectory is 10 years, but hopefully what's happening now will change it. And then it's going to be innovation, technology, and automation that will have to replace it because there's not going to be the humans to do it. I think we've thoroughly covered, obviously, the scary side of the expense column on these The counterbalance to that, which we have touched on briefly already, is rising rent levels, rising condo values. So on that front, do you see enough upward momentum in rent and pricing to compensate for the increased costs? I think the answer to that is if you go back to 2017, everyone says $600 a square foot for a condo is insane. And then when you go forward a year, it's insane and insane. And we keep going up and $1,300 and $1,500 keep selling. So is it affordable? I don't know if I'd use the phrase affordable, but it's selling. So it must make sense to the person buying it. And then the question is, is with tra- trajectory, no idea. I don't think you could. anyone can answer the question, where is the trajectory going to carry on in terms of the pricing? But it has to go up. Because costs are up and there's no sign of cost coming down. We've made the joke before, the project doesn't work, add $50 a square foot, lower your cap rate, increase your rent. That's the way to make it work. And unfortunately, that has been how some projects have had to make sense. It's those prices that had to creep up. You have new challenges now, potentially coming into the market. You have the sustainability challenge, which is an interesting one because it's something that everybody wants to do. It's the right thing to do, but in effect, it makes housing less affordable in the the challenge with sustainability is it adds costs, but no one ever wants to pay for it. So everyone says it's a good idea, but the revenues don't go up. So right now, if you're in Toronto, we've got Toronto Green Standards. Next year, we're going to move from version three to version four. So tier two in the current version, which is a higher degree of sustainability than tier one, which is mandatory, that'll become the new mandatory tier one next year. So all of a sudden, construction costs go up, say, $10, $20 a square foot, maybe 4%. That's all got to get figured out, and it takes a while to figure it out. But no one would disagree that sustainability is not the target, that carbon neutral is not a good target. Well, there may be a few people in tinfoil hats that are going to deny it, but it's heading in that direction. So it's a good thing that's bad. 
And then the newer one, I don't know if you call it a threat or not, is inclusionary zoning in Toronto specifically, just because of the way the framework, that's now going to put a threat on that. I mean, inclusionary zoning could mean you have to increase revenue by 50, 100 bucks a square foot, depending where it ends up. So there's these challenges where not only does it have to keep going up, but in theory, it could become less affordable, there's more cost to eat. And at the current trajectory, those revenues just have to keep going up. And I think I'd mentioned revenues are up over 90% in the since 2017. It's a huge increase, and all of that has gone to cost. Profit hasn't gone up on average at all. I'm trying to think of a nice positive spin to all of this, Marlon, but I'm struggling. Marlon, before we get to where's the optimism and what we will finish there, let's talk about, I think these kind of go hand in hand, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but one of maybe the silver linings or one of the levers to pull to combat some of these kind of consistent, what seems like permanent increases in sort of the hard costs land values like isn't that kind of the variable like if you can't make it work at whatever your projected revenue is you just pay less for that land like do you see that as sort of a counter to some of these challenges so this is where usually josh candrell calls me dr doom that was the new title for the last two years so maybe the negative needs to stop the challenge with land values is in theory you would think land value would come down and i think that's one of the premises behind inclusionary zone is land value come down but historically that actually hasn't happened if you look, beginning part of the last 10 years, so DCs have increased massively. The soft cost side's gone up to 25% of a new home, basically 22, 25% of a new home goes in taxes levies. Land value didn't come down in that period. It went up. You look at construction costs, they've gone up, we know they've gone up 40% the last few years. You would assume to offset that land price would come down, land price is up 100%. So could land come down? I think in theory, but historically that hasn't really happened unless there's some sort of major event such as a recession that would cause a correction, a major correction in the market. Because the challenge with the land price is, you used to do like, you know, a land residual. This is what land would be worth. Whereas now a lot of the people selling the land, not all of them are in development. They look at the guy next door. He sold 250 bucks. The guy wants 275 bucks. Or they look and they go, you know, the land's worth $200, but you're going to develop it. You're going to make this money. I want a piece of your pie as well. Now you're creating this challenge where they're not actually getting what the land might be worth today, they're wanting what the land could be worth in the future. And with those sort of counteracting balances, it's hard to see land necessarily correcting by the sort of level it would need to. And to offset, say, a $90, $100 square foot revenue, you're talking like land coming down 20 25%. We're not talking marginal decreases in land. And historically, that hasn't happened. Maybe it will do, but I think a lot of people go into a land price and again, it's that leap of faith looking at over eight years. How can I make it work? And if you're a developer and you've got a pipeline, the pipeline's got to keep coming. So you've got to make figuring out ways of making that project work. Extra density is an easy one. If I got a million square foot, if I had an extra half million square foot, all of a sudden that land price looks lower. That's more so the way I think you're going to see things dealt with necessarily the land prices giving up, unless the market slides to a complete halt, in which case that's the doom and gloom scenario, then land prices come down. Maybe that's me being a bit negative. Well, let's try and solve this before we get off today. We've got 10 minutes to get resolution on this. And you did just mention a few options. If land prices aren't going to give, maybe it is government intervention. Of course, the capitalists watching don't want to hear that. But do you see government intervention, the form of DCs or extra density, as you already mentioned, do you see that as a viable means of relieving the pressure on this? And what do you think the government's doing right or wrong in that arena? Well, I think the challenge you've got with the government, in Canada in particular, is you have three levels of government all doing their own thing. So we have the federal government pushing immigration. So immigration's been increasing, which is fantastic. But in Ontario, housing starts have been consistent. So immigration's up, housing starts are consistent. 
Now we have a lag in the number of houses. You have the province that sits in between the feds and the municipalities trying to get housing moving, trying to get the approvals going. And then you've got the municipal level. The municipal level is only interested in the loudest voices or tends to have to listen to the loudest voices because they're influenced by local factors, the NIMBY. So the NIMBY's the guy that got the low-rise house. They hit the lottery 10, 20 years ago. They got the house. Now they don't want a high-rise next to them. It pushes that back. So the challenge you have with the government is there's no consistent national approach. Um, Scotiabank issued a report. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. Basically, Canada's house building is the lowest in the G7 in terms of number per thousand. And actually, since 2016, that's been decreasing as population increases. To such an extent, the deficit in houses under construction is something like 100,000 just to get back to that uh, 2016 level. If they actually tried to match in with the UK, it's about 250,000. So there's a lack of supply in the system. And the problem is, is all of those different levels of government have conflicting interests. There's no national approach. And basically, the national approach needs to be, we need more density in the right places. Right now, every single project is a fight. And that's the challenge, because the locals have turned it into a blood sport. I don't want any density. Six stories is massive. It's huge. You go downtown, 80 stories is massive. It's huge. There needs to be a much more sensible national approach, or at least provincial approach, on where density goes, because we know population is going to increase. We know in Ontario, it's going from about 6.8 now. I think it's 2040, it's going to go over 10 million. Like we've got massive increases, population, 120,000 a year. It has to be dealt with. You can't have the feds going, pushing population growth and everyone else in the system slowing down development, putting red tape in the place. So can the government help? Yeah. I think it's that bonus density I think when it comes to affordable housing, it's all about a partnership. It's about waiving the DCs, giving a property tax break, or giving the density. I think, uh, was it Albert Einstein said, if you keep doing things the same way and expect to change, it's like the definition of insanity. It's kind of where we've reached right now is, let's increase the number of people, but not increase the housing. Who knew that could go wrong? And I mean, basically, this started from the government in Ontario. Myself and David Miner used to do a the presentation decks, I think it was about three or four years ago, we used to focus on the green belt. And that green belt really triggered a lot of the issues we have now. And it was an unintended consequence. It wasn't deliberate. But the green belt basically copied London. So you heard me make the joke, we're like London in the UK, so someone dumped a lake to the south of us, so we've only got half a green belt. And it pushed density into urban areas and allowed low rise to go into places like Milton. The challenge you've got with that is, with that density, we kept consistent housing starts. And I think I mentioned earlier, population growth has been huge. So Target's 120,000 people a year. Ontario had 230,000 people in uh, 2019 in migration. Housing starts aren't changing. The government really needs to figure out a plan that addresses affordability, the population growth, and needs to do it at a national level. I think expecting a municipality to figure this out is likely a little unfair in that the type of politics they deal with is super local. They don't have the wiggle room to try and do this. The plan needs to be fought bigger for the major cities. And for that, it needs the federal government to take the lead to a degree and try and open this up, or at least the provinces. That's a lot, Marlon. My brain's, you're giving me anxiety thinking about just that challenge. My follow-up question would be like, well, what's the solution? But I think you just answered it. It's, It's the federal government taking the lead and getting everybody in line. Is that even possible? Like maybe if you use other, you mentioned G7, maybe use other sort of considerable or comparable countries. Like, have other nations figured out how to do this? Japan has figured it out. Japan does not have an affordability issue, even though it has Tokyo, which is a huge city. They look at things at a much higher level, and they manage to keep house prices in balance. 
Again, it's that supply and demand. Right now, supply and demand is out of whacking everything in the real estate industry. And that supply and demand, and the only person that really can control it from a national level is the federal government. Do I think they can do it? No, chance in hell. The provinces, the feds, they don't get on. The municipalities, A, I don't think necessarily always trust the uh, province. And I think all three levels of government seem to think the development industry is always up to something when they try and come up with a solution. Because again, they go, the developer's making too much money. How do I explain that to a taxpayer when I don't necessarily think they understand the developer isn't making a lot of money if you consider the, the amount of risk that's taken for that return. And I think that's the challenge you've got. You've just got these competing goals or these competing influences and neither side seems to be able to come together and actually collaborate on an actual solution, which is just build more. And that goes back to the recruitment side of things, needs the province to help out with the recruitment into the industry. It needs a government push on recruitment. We need to increase capacity. And then we need to start building as quickly as possible. But you can't spend four years arguing about whether or not a tower should be 40 stories or 39 stories or 24 stories. Like it's a complete waste of everybody's time. What's the point of building transit if we don't put density on it? Like even as a logical argument, as an opening, and that's the challenge. It's the low rise. Everyone's happy. Again, they hit the lottery like me. I got my house in 2002, or the first one anyway, on the ladder. Right now, getting on the ladder is difficult. Why? Well, no one wants density. The density is going to help. Building more will eventually help. It's just going to take time. And this assumption that the developers are all suddenly going to massively increase their profit, we know it's not happening. Well, you guys see the numbers when people come to lend money. It's just not true. Those home run projects are far between. But again, that collaboration has to be built on trust. And the assumption is the developer's a wealthy guy making money. How the hell do I work with him? So Marlon, we've got just a few minutes left here. And Aaron and I like to end on a positive note always. So we're going to ask uh, Dr. Doom to... If we can. can. I was going to throw in, we haven't even talked about rising interest rates. Like they can't go much lower. (laughs) There's another cost. Like that's a big cost to our developers. Let's leave it there. So I don't want to be negative. Adam, (laughs) bring us home with some positivity, please. Okay. So Marlon, I'd ask you just to share a couple of best practices. Maybe it's in the finer points. Just a few tips here and there to squeak out a little more profit can make these projects viable. So can you share any best practices you've seen in the last while people trying to fine tune their return? I think it's suppressing that optimism. I know it's an odd word to say suppress optimism. Everyone's always optimistic about how long things are going to do. I'm going to do it quicker than I should do. I'm going to get it six months earlier. I sold for a great number. I don't need to worry. I think you need to be very, very pragmatic and very, very planned about how you go through things now and how you manage that risk and making sure you know you can get through the development process, you know you can get into construction. So it's stuff as simple as managing the drawing production. The drawings are far enough along that you know where your construction number is going to be or close enough when you sell that you can feel comfortable with jumping ahead with the project or because that point of sale might be the last chance to readjust the budget, that you can make those corrections before you dive in. And I think There's different developers with different sophistication do things differently. And it's that, like I say, being very, I always like to use the phrase measured, being very measured in every phase of the development. You can have some optimism in there. Don't be too conservative because if you're too conservative, you'll never have another development project. Anyone that's too conservative will never happen again. It's that balance of being pragmatist, where you're taking the risk, knowing you're taking the risk and moving it through in each stage, ticking the boxes, getting through in them and making sure you know what are the risks. If you think there's going to be an issue with the water, wait a bit, go figure out the water and say, Toronto, am I going to be tanked? Am I not going to be tanked? 
get this figured out early in the process and be very, very proactive, not reactive. The days of I sell out the entire building, I go celebrate and I figure out how to build it a year later. That's really difficult to make work right now. It's all about planning and being very, very pragmatic about the decisions you make. So I think we'll call it intelligent optimism then because developers, they need optimism. They live on it. There's a lot of challenging days in that line of work. So they need their optimism to survive. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks, of course, to the Ref Club for putting this together. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where uh, we're going to digest the conversation we just had with Marlon. So that's like the, I don't know, sixth or seventh or tenth time I've seen Marlon or talked to Marlon and always informative. And he kind of indicated like the story's not really positive right now. Like there's not a lot of really great things happening in the development space as it relates to, you know, affordability and getting more units online. It seems to be a ton of headwinds. Like the one that I think let's start with, because I think it's the it's sort of the skeleton in the closet that's not as easy. Like lumber costs are cool because you could just go, yeah, okay, this is what it costs today to buy wholesale. And he indicated it's coming back down. And, and that was just a blip in, in the in just the supply chain. But that labor availability, labor productivity, the just the knowledge base, right? Like I think that's the scariest part to me because it's it's hard to quantify, right? You can't just, you know, okay, well, it cost me X to buy the lumber today. So I'll just roll my pro forma into the new into the new reality. You know, productivity of labor is a variable that's really tough to pin down. The intelligence. My father's got an interesting story. He, he used to work in um, basically supply chain logistics, but more in um, education and training. And there's a story where he was doing something for an automaker on their manufacturing line. And a guy retired. And they did a whole brain dump, but the guy retired. And, and so something he missed was that the giant drums of paint that get stored outside for the majority of the year, for the two coldest months of the year, you got to bring it inside because those giant drums of paint will ruin, will spoil in the hard realities of winter. And they, they just, you just forgot to kind of let somebody know that. And so, of course, you know, come around April, May, and they open these giant drums of paint. And it was lots and like millions and millions of dollars worth of paint spoiled because some the guy just didn't tell somebody as he retired oh yeah you got to bring that paint in you just open that door and slide it in there right and so like that kind of silly stuff when you have you know people retiring in the in the in the development construction community you lose those weird like that's not written policy it's just some guy knew that oh yeah yeah it's november i gotta bring those in right so because maybe he learned that lesson at the start of his career and then, you know, that lesson paid off later, but now and, you're and he, and he, that lesson. He did it for 30 years, yeah, without telling anybody, because it was just one of those <laughs> things he learned he had to do, right? And so I think, I think you just can't quantify that. I think that's scary to me, right? Just how that's going to trans- translate, you know, over time. Well, the slow-moving nature of it, too, I mean, I mean, we mentioned it during the recording, but yeah, you can't, you can't watch a 35-year veteran leave the industry and then plug in somebody just finishing their apprenticeship and get the same level of, of skill. It's just, it doesn't happen. It takes years and years to build up. And preceding the apprenticeship, you have to get people to do trade school. Preceding that, you've got to steer them into that avenue. They're trying to correct that is, is such a long process. And people are not going to delay their retirements while we figure this out. It's just going to, to continue to get worse. And then there's the, the knock-on effects. You know, A lot of job sites have to sit on pause while they wait for the next trade to be available. So if you're a, if you're a buyer in a condo building that you know experienced those kinds of delays, you know part of your purchase price reflects that you 
paid for that site to sit vacant collecting tumbleweeds for three weeks while they waited for the electricians to show up. You know, it's it's uh, kind of crazy. It's a very inefficient use of uh, use of money because either could have been a lower sale price or additional profit for the developer rather than just carrying a land loan while a site sits there, uh, you know, doing nothing. Yeah. And so for the trades and good on these guys that are able to retain their talent and be able to maintain efficiencies and maintain, able to maintain reputation of delivering and being on time, yeah, they're just going to start charging more because if, if there aren't nearly as many that have the same characteristics. So it's a conundrum. And it'd be really interesting to see how this plays itself out. Keep moving down some of the conversations. And I kind of preface this, this after show with this is going to be negative and I apologize. But No, I, I have know. a sunny ending though, Aaron. I, I have okay, a sunny okay, ending. So okay, go, okay. go negative Wait. now as much as you want. Okay, I'll let's go. Let's, let's go. Like one of the craziest things that, that he was talking about was the cost of delays. And I think, you know, this kind of gets lost, you know, unless you're in the development realm, how timing is probably one of the biggest costs. Like just the time it takes to build is one of the biggest costs. If you think about it that way. Uh, and so, you know, he was saying like, you know, COVID, of course, but if it happens as a result of strikes or bad weather or whatever it may be, a three month delay adds five bucks uh, per square foot pre-construction and then four bucks per square foot during construction. So if you have a six month delay throughout your duration, let's say you you pro forma to two year development, then it ends up being a two and a half year development. That six months costs you basically ten dollars per square foot. If your costs are two hundred fifty dollars per square foot, like that's that's material. Like that's that's five percent of your return or whatever it ends up being, right? Like it's it's it matters, and it's amazing to me that those delays add up. Think about how long it takes to get through the city in a lot of municipalities around the country, right? Like we're talking. It's like, well, it might take me three years. It might take me four years, right? Like it's, it's not like it takes me three months or four months. Like you're talking a material amount of time. And, and not that this is some huge insight. I mean, a million people have said it before, but I, I do believe in it. I mean, one of the best incentives a city could offer, especially when they're trying to you know, incentivize affordability, is just fast tracking through that process. Because if the city offers development charge reductions or additional density that I uh, know they're not being properly compensated for, that does impact revenue to the city. If they just shorten timelines for developers, there's a real financial benefit to the developer that the city wouldn't be participating in anyway. So that is such a no-brainer way of incentivizing developers with something meaningful to them that doesn't actually cost the city very much, other than they'd have to put mechanisms in place to fast track these kinds of applications. Well, but, I can't remember who the interview who we interviewed, but I mean, my understanding is that still is it still paper submissions, even even post COVID, where you still need to print everything out and send it in? Like I, I, or maybe that just changed. But I mean, it just you know, it is still very very slow, cumbersome process that I mean clearly needs to get needs to get resolved at some point. Well, on that topic, then Aaron Marlin talked about construction not being very innovative. Maybe we'll include the city process as part of that. Is there an area of real estate that is? highly innovative. I mean, maybe prop tech notwithstanding, but I would struggle to think of any area of real estate that's really, you know, cutting edge. And I would sadly include financing in that equation as well, that yeah. I'm not seeing groundbreaking work in AI yet or, or anything uh, that would, you know, make us make our lives uh, accelerate forward. You know, it's one of those things is it, it's happening. It's happening in all, all corners of our industry. But I think just in such small little increments that you don't notice, right? Like, there is automation of email intake or there is automation of underwriting or you know there's there's better understanding of how to utilize your data or at least even just understanding you need to collect your data there are less spreadsheets in the world today than there were 
a year ago, right? If you think about spreadsheets being an old school, you know, you put your information into a file and then you save your file on your desktop and the information in that spreadsheet is inaccessible to anybody else, right? Like there are less of those situations where it's no longer in a spreadsheet, it's in a SharePoint file or it's in somewhere else where the data is aggregatable or accessible to, to the masses. But it's so hard to quantify those small, tiny little incremental improvements that are going on all throughout the industry. Well, I think what you and I are hoping for is some big, massive, hey, guess what? Like, I don't know, do you see today Tesla announced that they're building a robot, right? And you just want to be like, okay, cool. <laughs> and in, in six months, we're all going to have Tesla robots as butlers walking around <laughs> pouring our drinks, right? Like, I just, unfortunately, it just doesn't feel like the world moves that quickly, right? Well, it's funny how you actually mentioned Tesla because I did just yesterday have a moment or an experience where it felt like a real leap forward in terms of technology. And that is I took a Tesla X for a test drive and get, you know, the, with the gull wing doors, it's, it's very, very cool. And uh, I got in that thing and I was like, oh, this is the car of the future. This feels like a big leap forward. This is very, very, very cool. So it was funny you brought that up because I did have the sensation of rushing into the future uh, just yesterday via Tesla. Here's this total tangent. Sorry for, for the listeners, but st- hold on to the rope. Here's why you get into sales, not uh, operations. Because I also went for a recent test drive, but I took out a Honda CRV. And I was also impressed by my Honda CRV because it had an Apple connection on my, my screen for my phone. That was the only cool thing about it. Uh, so anyway, stick in sales, you'll drive a Tesla, go to operations, you'll drive Hondas. That's the, that's the moral of the story. Uh, do you want to hear my sunny ending? Do you want, do you want to end yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay so, so here it is, my sunny ending for the takeaway conversation with Marlon. Like, yes, we identified five or six things that are, are headwinds for development, but we got to keep in mind that those five or six headwinds are all leaning into what was or may, you know, or still is the best development environment that we've had in decades. So yes, this likely will have I know a dampening effect on, uh, on some of that, but we're coming off such incredible high. It is not going to be too catastrophic if we uh, you know, pump the brakes a little bit. So that, that's my interpretation of the conversation as well. That's the sunny ending. We're coming off an incredible high, so don't lose heart. Fair. I'll leave it there. I have so many responses, but I'll leave it there. Let's, let's end on a, on a positive. Yeah, don't Thanks ruin day. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a, great, have a great day, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.